Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 lays out for us the nature of man's relationship with God. And in this passage, we are confronted with Jesus' words about how God views those who sin against him. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, to set the stage, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And we'll find out what God thinks about sinners and publicans and how Jesus interacts with them this evening. So I trust we will learn much about ourselves as well as the God who loves us. And so once again, we are in Luke chapter 15. It's one of the worst feelings in the world, and I'm sure we've experienced it at some time in our lives. Whether it's in a car, or whether it's in a mall, or maybe even hiking in a wilderness, somewhere along the way we have all gotten lost before. And the bottom line is, for a person to be lost, it means that you made an error in judgment, and you don't know where you are, and what's more, you don't know how to get back on track. And I remember when I was younger in the family car, we would ask my dad, Dad, are we lost? And often my dad would respond, no, we're not lost, we're just misplaced. We just, we just have a little trouble here. And if you, have, uh, you, you know the stereotype, you know, the, the wife says, honey, stop and ask for directions. And uh, the husband typically responds, well, I'm just about back where I need to be. And so there's no need to stop. And so uh, there, we often have times where maybe we make an error in judgment and we uh, tend to get ourselves in places we don't necessarily or didn't necessarily mean to go. Now I would say most often getting lost is more of an annoyance. But there are certain circumstances and situations where getting lost can be, have dire consequences. It can actually become a matter of life or death. And this is especially true if you find yourself lost while hiking in the wilderness, as I mentioned before. See, many a hiker has lost their life because they wandered off the right path while they were hiking. And what I find fascinating about most stories of lost hikers is that they fail to do the one thing, the simple thing, that would help them the most in their plight. Most often a lost hiker fails to do one thing, well, two things. They fail to stop, and they fail to admit that they are lost. It sounds simple. Just stop and admit that you are lost, and you increase your chances of being found. But a lost hiker often doesn't stop. He keeps wandering. And in his wandering, he reveals something about the human heart that we'll talk about here in a second. What we find often is that as we walk and as those hikers wander, we think or they think they know and so they wander and they wander and they make their situation more and more dire. And this is true, again, of those who would go hiking. This is true of those in a car, in a mall. But most importantly and more importantly, this reality is true in the spiritual life of men as well. See, people hate to admit that they are lost or they have made a mistake or they have sinned. And whether saved or unsaved, oftentimes we go about our business each day. 
We make choices. We navigate challenges. And then one day we wake up in our consequences and we wonder, how did I get here? This scenario has happened often in either our lives or in the lives of those around us. And this reality was so prevalent, in fact, that Jesus even dealt with this reality in our text for the evening. And from this discussion, we have one of the greatest parables delivered unto us. It is the parable, as we know it, as the prodigal son. And as we work through this parable, I hope we will all see ourselves represented And that we will come to realize that because our sin is great and our God is gracious, we must be quick to biblically repent. I know we probably know the story of the prodigal son, but I trust that we will see it anew and afresh this evening. And I would ask you to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit tonight as we work through Luke chapter 15 and this narrative, this parable of the prodigal son. So we're going to pick up in verse 11. Verse 11 states, as Jesus is speaking, he states, a certain man, verse 11, and he said, a certain man had two sons. Now we probably know, again, this probable uh, parable, and we know that this parable is representative. Uh, this parable is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so when we look at this beginning, as Jesus begins, a certain man had two sons, we learn about three individuals. We learn about a man, and we learn about his two sons. And in these verses, can I say and can I submit to you that the man is representing God, and the two sons is representing us. And so we'll talk a little bit more about God and us this evening. We need to understand first that our rebellion is worse worse than we often recognize. Again, you know the story, so let's pick it up in verse 12. It says, And a younger son of them said unto his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. We'll stop there. We'll pick up here in the next few moments. But we need to understand the rebellion of this younger son. Think about this. We are so rebellious before God. And sometimes when we go through the Bible and we read from Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters into the world, and all the way to the end, God is consistently revealing to us how sinful and rebellious we are. On top of that, he, as a just God, has to punish that sin. And sometimes we bristle at some of the punishment that we see in the Bible. We kind of think, man, is that harsh? Why does he have to be so harsh? But I want us to think a little bit about our rebellion before God. Think about this. We are the creature that God formed for himself. And we dare to rebel against the one who fashioned us. We, being made of dirt, would dare raise our fists against the one who formed us. And I think in some cases when we see the judgment laid out or meted out 
to, uh, as God meets it out to those who are sinful. Sometimes we bristle at that, but we really should grasp the fact that every single one of us deserves punishment. We deserve to be under the wrath of God, and Scripture bears that out. And the interesting thing is, is often we tend to minimize our sin. In fact, sometimes even comparing ourselves to others, and we say, well, I'm not, at least I'm not that bad. Oh, I've got problems, Lord, but I, at least I'm not like him, or maybe I'm not, at least I'm not like her. But re- the reality is, Jeremiah chapter 17, 9, really talks about the deceitfulness of our own heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The passage continues and talks about how God is the one who searches the heart. He is the only one who knows the depths of our depravity. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, again, very popular verses. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans continues, there is none righteous, no, not one. I could continue for, very, for a long time just laying out how often we rebel against God. And in fact, even in the context, look at verse 2 of chapter 15. The Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives who? Sinners and eateth with them. So even the audience of this original parable were known as sinners. They had the uh, understanding, if anyone saw them walking on the streets, they knew who those people were. They were sinful. And so even the audience that Jesus is talking to has been described as sinners. Sinners and those who would rebel against God. And so we need to understand that our rebellion is often worse than we recognize What happened in this narrative that would have revealed the depths of this rebellion? Look at verse 12 again. The younger of them, the younger of the sons, said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falleth to me. So first off, we see an insubordinate request that is taking place here. Basically, the son says, hey, give me what you owe me, dad. Comes to him. And he says, your, your, your care for me, you know, your provision for me, I've basically had it. I'm done living under your roof, basically. The father's care and protection was not what the son wanted anymore. He wanted his own way. He comes to his dad and says, give me the portion of the goods that fall to me. He thought he could run his life better than his father could, which is an amazing thing to think about because everything that that son has was given to him by the father, not by anything he would do. And yet this, I would say, snotty-nosed kid (laughs) comes and says, I know better. I can run my life better than you. He knew better than his dad, and he knew better what would bring him happiness. And he knew what he wanted to be fulfilled. And can I say, it was not with his father. So you have this picture of a young, a young man coming and saying to his dad, give me what you owe me. Now, how many times are we like that, even with our heavenly father? We come and we say, Lord, I deserve this. I expect this. Give it to me. 
And so we have an insubordinate request. If that's not enough, continue on, verse 13. And not many days after, so after he gets what is divided unto him, that's the end of verse 12, the father divides unto him them his living. Verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, and he took his journey into a far country. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. Not only was there an insubordinate request, there also was a rebellious and riotous life, a life that was diametrically opposed to the life that his father had raised him under. So what happened is he put his feet to his inner rebellion and he struck out on his own. And how did things go for him? Well, at first, can I say, things seemed to go well. Seemed like everything was at his, life was at, the world was at his beck and call. Things were going great. He goes and he, he journeys to this far country and he wastes his substance. He spends, he has a great time spending, he lives riotously, and sometimes when we think about sin, sin can be fun for a season. Oftentimes we think sin is actually a good idea and we can uh, justify and we can try to maneuver and we think everything is going great and maybe for a short time there is no consequences, everything is hunky-dory and we think, hey, I made the right call. And it's often in those moments when you, uh, we often have the sentiment like, something like, see, I knew, I knew I was smarter than dad. I'm doing just fine. I don't need him. But he was living a rebellious and riotous life. His father had raised him a certain way, with certain expectations, and yet he decided, no, I'm going to live how I want to live. And he put feet to that rebellion. And can I say, for a while, it seemed like everything was going well. But like scripture says, be sure your sins will find you out, and not only what a man sows, that shall he also reap, This is what happens. We know the story. Pick up in verse 14. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. Things weren't going maybe, okay, things are okay. We're still all right. I have a few needs, but we'll figure it out. But then the famine happened. Then verse 15, when he needed want, or he was in want, then he, he needed something. So he goes to verse 15. He went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. Okay, so he got a job. And what did, the job, what did the job entail? Well, he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And the original audience, when they heard this, there may have been kind of a little bit of a gasp because for a Jewish person to go and to feed or touch or be around pigs was unthinkable. And yet this young man in the midst of his rebellion is now doing things that previously he would have never thought about doing. And he continues down this road of rebellion and it continues to get worse and worse and his consequences begin to be harder and harder and harder. And he's living this rebellious, riotous living. He runs out of the ability to live riotously and now he is in want. And can I say we have not only an insubordinate request, not only a rebellious and riotous life, but now a just result. And that just result is great difficulty. Again, verse 14, when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine, and he began to be in want. 
He went and he joined himself. He goes into the fields to feed swine. And verse 16, and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And then the end, no man gave unto him. Perhaps he went to his friends, maybe the ones that he had picked up as he was living riotously and said, hey, you got, you got any help? And they said, no, I got nothing for you. He had no help. He had no external help. He couldn't help himself. And can I say, sometimes we forget that consequences are coming. Oh, we are free to choose, but we are not free to choose the consequences of those choices. And can I say, in this case, the consequences are great difficulty, but this is by design. See, Scripture makes it clear that the way of the transgressor is hard. This young man experienced the difficulties of his choice, the consequences of his choice, and can I say, it actually was a grace. He was being broken. And when God gives us what we want, we often find that what we wanted wasn't what we wanted in the first place. And so we have an insubordinate request. We have a rebellious and riotous life. And now we have a just result, that just result being great difficulty. And I can't help but think about the time that I went to Chicago, Illinois, uh, with our youth group when I was in high school. And one of the things that we did is we toured uh, a, uh, the, the Pacific Garden Mission. And we walked in there, and we had, I had heard, I grew up listening to Unshackled on the radio, to hear the stories of those who uh, transformed their life through Christ. And I walked through, and there was a young man, or there was a, well, probably a middle-aged man, but he looked like he was about as old as my dad, or maybe even as old as my grandfather, and he mentioned his age, and we all kind of gasped a little bit. And he said, the reason I look the way I look is because of the consequences of my sin. And he proceeded to talk about his testimony and how he lived just a rebellious and riotous life. But then one day at the bottom, when he was in the gutter, he went to Pacific Garden Mission, heard the gospel, and accepted Christ. And one of the things he said to us as we were leaving, he said, young people, can I just encourage you? Can I remind you? And he said the phrase, and this is a well-known phrase, he said the phrase, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And the question that I have for us this evening, do we have sins that need to be made right? Are you a prodigal in any of these areas? Are things right before you and God? Have you rebelled against God? Have you made choices that says, Lord, I want my way. I don't want your way. Have we been insubordinate to him? I expect this, Lord. Have we made choices that would reveal a rebellious and riotous life? Are we going through consequences now, even, even as we sit and as we think, that would reveal just great difficulty? Maybe perhaps you've never accepted Christ. Maybe you are sitting here and you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Can I say then, there's one thing that needs to happen, whether you're a saved person or an unsaved person, and that is a thing called repentance. 
Perhaps you are saved, and maybe you've been living like a rebel. Then you need to repent. And that leads us to the second point in the message. Not only is our rebellion worse often than we recognize, but repentance then is our only hope. Look at verse 17. It says, and when he came to himself, so as he's about to fill his stomach with the waste that is given to the pigs, he said, how many, he comes to himself and he says, how many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Repentance was his only hope. Now what is repentance? Well, repentance is a change of mind which leads to a change of action. And I sat back I just, even just a few weeks ago and, and one of the, the privileges that I have is to uh, take a few classes in, in an area of, of counseling. And I remember going to um, to the class this past summer, just uh, one, one evening, and they were talking about repentance. And I sat there and I thought, oh yeah, repentance, I know about repentance, and yeah, it's necessary. But then our teacher broke down this passage, and he went through the process of repentance, and I realized something. I realized how often I get repentance wrong. And I sat there and I thought, Lord, I thought I have repented from several, you know, several sins that I've committed. And then I realized that my repentance was incomplete, as the Bible lays out. And right then and there, it was kind of like a dagger right to my heart. And I sat back and I thought, Lord, teach me how. Teach me how to repent properly. So what is the components of biblical repentance as the Bible lays out, as Jesus is teaching these sinners? What does repentance look like? Well, first off, we see verse 17, and I underline this in my Bible. When he came to himself, the boy comes to his senses. What are the components for him to be able to come to his, his senses? Well, first off, he sees his sin for what it is. You see again, verse 17, he came to himself. He said, how many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. He stops. Can I say, again, as I mentioned in the introduction, he has a moment where he stops. He's about to fill his mouth with the slop from the pigs. And he stops. And he takes an assessment of his life, and he realizes, I have blown it. Look at what I have done. Look how I have turned from my father. Look how I have treated him. Look at my consequences and how far sin has taken me, and I sit here in the slop. And for the first time, he sees his sin for what it is. It is rebellion against the father. He stops and he recognizes his actions, their consequences. And can I say in one sense, though I know it's a, it's a parable and so we're kind of switching back and forth, in one sense he gets God's mind on the issue that he has. And can I say there's a result. First off, he has godly sorrow and his senses come to him. He doesn't want what he has anymore. He's fed up both with his sin and its consequences. 
He says, I mean, I don't match up. Look at even those hired servants of my father. And I sit here with the pigs. He comes to himself. And the question I have for us tonight is, how long has it been since you've had a situation like this? How long has it been since you sat down and you assessed your life? And you looked at what is going on in your life and you said, wow, I've blown it. Here's the wonderful thing, though. As soon as we stop, like I mentioned in the introduction, that's the first step. And that's important. And that's necessary. To stop and to admit when you have done wrong. This is a part of what is called confession. It's confession to God. You confess your sin to God. Now, what is confession? Well, you say the same thing. You say the same thing as God says. This young man in verse 17, as he recounts what he did and as he recounts how his father's servants have bread and how he doesn't have that and how it doesn't match up and how he messed up, all of that could be considered confession. However, we're going to see it manifested. Okay, this is all internal right now. And when we confess our sins to God, what, is the, what does Scripture make clear to us? It makes clear that there is forgiveness and cleansing. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. No, all unrighteousness. I was, I was hopeful to see people go, yes, all unrighteousness. And when we see this happening in verse 17, when he comes to himself, he has recognized all of these things. He got God's view of his sin. And he understood that he didn't measure up. He messed up. He blew it. And he's sitting in the consequences of it. And for us, we need to get God's view of our sin. We need to see from his word when God says, thou shalt not, or thou shalt. We need to see those things. And when we go against it, can I encourage you? Be quick to say, Lord, I blew it. I messed up. Keep short accounts with God. This is what the prodigal finally does. He stops. But is that it? I think there's more to biblical repentance, and I think there's more here in the passage that lays out and instructs us how biblical repentance is manifested. So not only does he stop, and he recognizes and he gets God's view of his sin, but then, now secondly, he determines a plan to walk away from that sin and get back to God. Look at verse 18. This is what he says to himself again. He says, I will arise. I will go to my father. I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. There's the confession. And it's a confession that is laid into a plan of what he's even going to say to his father when he sees him. I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And then verse 19, I'm now no more worthy to be called thy son. Is that true? Yes. He wasted his inheritance. And he then says, make me as one of your hired servants. So what does he do? He determines a plan. He plans a way to seek his father's forgiveness, even rehearsing what he's going to say. It's confession. It's taking responsibility for that sin. It's also then pleading for mercy. And he takes a step to ask for forgiveness and make changes in his life. But he doesn't stop there. There's one other step. 
and that's actually doing. He acts. Not only does he recognize and see his sin for what it is, not only does he determine a plan to walk away from that sin, but then he also now acts on his plan for, rede- for repentance. You see that in verse 20 when he says, he arose and came to his father. Can I say that's a humbling thing? I don't know about you, but I'd be really nervous. I'd be, have knots in my stomach as I'm walking down the driveway. I'd be thinking about what I did. Thinking about the fact that I blew it. Pleading for mercy. Thinking about what am I going to say when he looks at me? How am I going to react? And here's the wonderful thing. He doesn't just sit in the mire, in the muck, but he gets up and he puts feet to his repentance. Again, repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart that then manifests itself in a change of behavior. It's something that can be seen. I find it fascinating that he's open to whatever consequences that await him. But here's the, here's the wonderful thing. At least he'll be back with his father. He goes back and he says, don't send me away. You can even hire me as just a helper. I just want to be back with you. I don't care what the consequences are, Dad, I blew it. Would you please be merciful to me? And I wonder how bad do we want God's mercy to be on us? How much do you want God's favor? For the prodigal son, it didn't matter what it cost him. Public shame, everyone was going to see it. Everyone knew this guy left. Everyone knew what he had been up to. But it didn't matter what it cost him. He wanted to be back with his father. I would say they're the hardest words to voice. There's only seven words in the English language. And those seven words are, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And I wonder tonight, why do we as humans, why do we fight so hard to not repent? Why do we have to be right? Or why do we find a way to justify ourselves? You can't can't help but even read some of the headlines for very long and you see someone who's apologizing and when you hear about the apology, it's not really an apology. And people say, you didn't mean it, and you just were sorry because you got caught, and they, you seek to try to, to justify yourself. And why do we fight so hard to not repent? Why do we have to be right all the time? Well, it's because we're sinful, and we don't want to admit that we are wrong. But can I say, sometimes our consequences break us of that. But I believe also partly we don't, Repent, because we don't know who our God is. And this passage kind of gives us who our God is. And this is the wonderful part, and we've got to move quickly. But can I say, number three, that God is so gracious to us. Again, the Father is representing God in this, in this parable. And what do we see from the Father? Well, first off, go back up to verse 12 just very quickly. We understand that he doesn't force himself on us. Verse 12, I find it fascinating at the end of verse 12. It says, he divided unto them his living. The father grants the request of the prodigal. He says, if you really want to go, I'll give it to you. On top of that, as the prodigal leaves in verse 13, you don't see the father running after him, pleading with him, begging with him, you know, grabbing him by the ankles. 
taking away his car keys. You don't see any of that. You see the father just standing back and weeping as he walks away. And how can I say he's probably weeping? Well, because of how he returns and what the father says and does. But I would say he doesn't force himself on us. He let him leave. And God often gives us what we want. Why? So that we understand that our greatest need and greatest avenue for fulfillment is not in that rebellion, but rather in the freedom to live under his care and under his provision and under his guidance. So he doesn't force himself on us. But lest you think, well, maybe the father doesn't care. That's not the case either. This doesn't mean he disowns us or forgets about us. He doesn't force himself on anyone, but at the same time, he doesn't mean that he is aloof or that he is uncaring or that he is cold. In fact, you look at the picture in the Old Testament of God and his chosen people, the children of Israel, and it manifests or it comes to culmination where the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37 says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. You would expect him to say, I'm going to wipe you out. But what Jesus says is, how often would I have gathered thy children together? Even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. And you would not. So he doesn't force himself on us. If we want to rebel against him, he'll let us. But it doesn't mean that he's aloof. In fact, we even find in the picture here that he is actually waiting for us to repent. You see that in verse 20. It says, He arose, came unto his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. That means he was looking. He had compassion on him. He saw his plight. And then he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. It's kind of interesting that Jesus brings up the fact that he ran. Uh, It's not proper for a person of his stature to be running. In, in Israel, that would not have been a normal occurrence to see an older person running. They would have sent servants and they would have, but here's the deal, he was waiting. Uh, this, was, this, was big, this was big stuff. His father was watching, waiting, hoping that the sun would come back. And when he sees the sun on the horizon, he doesn't send a servant. He doesn't go back into his uh, retreat into the house. He runs. He runs to his son. And God likewise rejoices when we repent. You can go through the minor prophets. And I love reading through some of those minor prophets over and over again. I was reading in Hosea. And he's just waiting and pleading with his people to come back. And when they do come back, he promises the restoration, the, forgive, the forgiveness, the even blessing back to, him, to them. So I don't think we should think that God would never receive us because our sin is too great. He's actually waiting for us to repent. And when we do repent, what do we get? Well, verse 22, we get mercy. Verse 22, but the father, let's see, let's go back up to verse 20, excuse me, and it says, he rose, he came, he had compassion, he fell, I ran, fell on his neck, he kissed him, verse 21, the son said unto him, okay, here it is, he gets the hug, and now he's like, okay, dad, I got to talk to you, I got to tell you, and so here, here's the confession, father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, 
and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And before he gets out the last part, which remember what that last part is? Go back up. Uh, verse 19 says, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He doesn't even get that part out. And you see, verse 22, the father interrupts him and says, The father said unto his servants, Hey, bring forth the best robe, put on him, put the ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The son begins the rehearsed confession and asking for forgiveness and even taking a lower position. And what does the father do? He cuts him off. He says, hey, to the servants, hey, go get a robe. Hey, go get a ring. That means authority. That means this is my son. And he restores. He restores him to a place of sonship. He restores also the fellowship. He welcomes and celebrates the return of the one who repented. Oh, Beloved, if we could just grasp the mercy of our God. This doesn't minimize our sin. Let me be clear. Sin is still sin. It's a, it's a great affront before God. But when we name it and we own it and we ask for forgiveness, oh, the mercy that our, that our Savior, that our God gives to us. What grace. And so, as we wrap this up, I would say, I would remind you that a certain man had two sons. We spent our time this evening talking about a son who made foolish choices and rebelled against his father. He lived that rebellion before all to see. And we've watched and we examined the father's amazing forgiveness in this life. He needed that forgiveness and everyone knew it. And we saw the correlation between this rebel and us. And we saw the father and God and the connection and the mercy. But remember, this father had two sons. What about the second son? And may I submit to you that this son also needed forgiveness. So we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the older son, but the older son justified himself through external action, all the while his heart was full of jealousy and bitterness. See, on the outside, it appeared that he was the good son, but inside, he was just as bad as his younger brother. Angry, rebellious, perhaps even jealous of his younger brother. I'm guessing tonight in our midst, we probably don't have too many. I mean, you're here at church. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You're probably here. You're, you're excited to listen, to know, to learn about God. And we probably don't have too many younger sons here. Most of us probably would be more like the older brother in the story. Perhaps maybe a self-righteous rebel. Because I remember when I was younger, and I remember even as I approached this passage, as I read through the, re the rebellious son and what happened, I had a little moment where I was like, well, at least I didn't do that. I've never acted that way, so I must be in the clear. That's the exact action and thought and process of thinking that the older brother had. And he was self-righteous, and he sought to try to uh, gain the favor of the father simply uh, through his own self-righteous actions. 
He hears about the graciousness on top of that. He hears about the graciousness of God. He's angry and prideful. He thinks that he's right with God because of outward action only. And I started to think about my own life. How often do I have a, sound a hearty amen when someone preaches against sins like homosexuality? And yet I carry or I have the temptation to carry grudges with the people next to me in the pews. How often do I say also a hearty amen when passages are preached on adultery and fornication and we sit back and we say, well, I haven't done that. And yet we selfishly demand that things are done in our way at our time. And see, no matter who we are today, we need to grasp that we are all rebels before God and we need his forgiveness. This narrative is often called the parable of the prodigal son, but I submit to you that to be faithful to what Jesus was actually talking about, I would say we need to rename this to be the parable of the prodigal's father. He is the true hero of the story. The two sons are scoundrels, not deserving mercy or grace. And yet the father receives his son, grants forgiveness, gives mercy, restores And can I say this magnifies the beauty and completeness of the forgiveness of our Father. Can I say this is our God. He receives sinners. He forgives and transforms both the private rebel as well as the public rebel. And tonight as we sit here, I wonder, are there things in your life that have drawn you away from God? Are you in rebellion before him? Are you like these two sons? I think all of us at different times in our life could say yes. What do we need to do? Well, I think, I, I think Scripture makes it clear we need to repent. Can I encourage you to repent and return to the Lord? Again, oh, that we would grasp the beauty and fullness of God's mercy. And who does he give that mercy to? He gives that mercy to a person who owns his sin, who determines a plan to walk away from that sin and acts upon that repentance. Can I encourage you or ask you, won't you make the first turn tonight? We all require forgiveness and mercy. Won't you call upon him this evening? Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? Heavenly Father, I would not presume to know all the things that are going on in the hearts of the people in front of me. But, Lord, you do. And, Lord, for such a time as this, in your perfect sovereignty, you wanted us to be here to hear this parable. And, Lord, I'm so thankful for our Savior. I'm so thankful for the forgiveness that he has purchased with his blood. I'm so thankful for the mercy. I'm so thankful that you, as our God, receive sinners For Lord, as the psalmist said, if you would count iniquity, no one would be able to stand before you. But Lord, you are merciful and you grant forgiveness. Father, would you help us not to be stubborn? Would you help us to say those words, those hard words sometimes? Lord, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And Lord, may we get good at asking for forgiveness because, Lord, we sin often. Lord, if there's some sin between us and a fellow believer, Lord, would you help us also to go to that person and make things right? All of us 
This passage strikes me to my heart. All of us need this reminder. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be quick to repent, that we might be again under your care, under your wisdom, under your provision. For Lord, you are so good. You've been so good, you are so good, and you will be so good. So Lord, would you help us to come? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.